Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Come in and welcome to you. Come, 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 come. We'll try to conserve the heat tonight because, well, come in. I'll tell you all about it. There, the heat is on. Earlier this week, we were up near 70 here in Chicago. Today, single digits. Ah, well. Now, deglove, unscarf, peel the fur, unloop the parkas, and make a choice. Hot or chilled beverage, hmm? Find a seat, while you're doing that, and while you're choosing your snack of the night and finding a chum to snuggle with, let me say just a few words. You know how, now and then, you get an itch, and you can't find it. It might be on your arm, your hand, your foot, but it resists all attempts to find and scratch it away. Well, this is about a film I saw this past week. As you may or may not know, Cecilia and I have a weekly movie gathering here. Like this, like Tales to Terrify. Yes, yes, friends come over, drinks and goodies go round, we chat, then fire up the movie machines and watch. Two, three films sometimes, horror-heavy these evenings tend to be, horror, science fiction, fantasy, and noir. Depends on the mood of the evening, and on the chums, too, of course, this past week. We saw a film called Surveillance. It's not a new one, no, 2008. Not one that many of you will have seen. I I believe it made about $25,000 at the box office after about $250,000 in the making. It's by David Lynch's daughter, Jessica. 
Jessica Lynch has made several films. She has not received high plaudits for most of her work. I think, yes, I think she truly disturbs most viewers. Take a look at Boxing Helena, for instance. Like her father, Jessica's work does disturb. It irritates. It gets under your skin and resists the scratching fingers of rationality. Let me capsulize surveillance. The FBI is on the trail of two serial killers. The killers are tracked to a small town in the desolate middle of nowhere, where a series of horrific murders and incidents have taken place. They take place as the film begins, in fact. Something begins as the film begins. Something awful. We're not sure what it is, but it is awful, and it is bloody. And, well, then, then the questions begin. Surveillance disturbs because it is a film about mass murder, perverse mass murder, random brutality. It's about human behavior under stress, under tedium, under various compelling urges. It's a Rashomon-like tale in which the piece unfolds after a compelling central action has already taken place, and we are made to discover some truth about it by re-examining the event through the testimony of those who have experienced it. In this case, all observers, all witnesses, are hiding various things for various reasons. I recommend it. I also want you to know that it is shocking and, as mentioned, disturbing. It is available on DVD now. Surveillance. Okay. Are you settled? Are you snuggled? Are you ready to be enlightened, to be entertained, to be chilled to the quick? Well, here we go. Things do go bump in the wide world of Webbery, and last month things went decidedly bump for our normal abattoiristas, Mike Allen and Shailen Hurlbert. Mike performed an heroic feat that managed a short but singularly personal tour of the meat factory. This month, he and his Igor, Shailen, return. Well, here they come. Hello again, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to the latest installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and today we're going to talk about child vampires. And no, I don't mean teenage vampires. I mean child vampires. But first, a matter of explanation. If are one of the few and demented who has been following this column from the very beginning. You might now be wondering, what on earth ever happened to that Shallon Hurlbert fellow? Well, he isn't dead. I haven't done anything horrible or even particularly unpleasant to him. Circumstances just made it difficult in those final months of 2012 for he and I to get together and record. Now, in fact... He was supposed to return in the previous installment. He and I had watched a fascinating new movie, John Dies at the End, and we recorded a very long and lively conversation. And we're still not entirely sure what happened to it. 
It has vanished into a technological ether. In fact, only one strange fragment of that half-hour conversation remains. I'm going to play it for you now, in this only surviving snippet. Shallon has a bit of advice to offer. Listen closely. Don't let your mother chase you through the woods, whipping you with a chain of knotted penises. What on earth could that mean? It's certainly a mystery. I'm afraid that you will have to either watch or read John Dies at the End to gain full understanding. However, do not despair, Shallon fans. He is back with a vengeance, and he and I are going to be talking about the book, Let the Right One In, and the two movies that are based on it. I read Let the Right One In over Christmas when I was horrendously ill for several days running with a fever of 102. And I have to say, this gritty, nasty, disturbing novel was somehow a perfect reflection of my state of being. Before we get going, I need to warn you, this conversation that Shallon and I had is chock full of spoilers for the books, for both the Swedish and American movies. And so if hearing that puts you in a state of panic and makes you realize that you had better skip the next 25 minutes, I'm going to give you a very quick rundown. It's safe to say that Shallon and I would rank these items in this order. The book is best. The Swedish film, second best. The American film, third best. Although Shallon, who is nowhere near as judgmental and vindictive as I am, likes the American film better than I did. And so that's the capsule review for those of you afraid of spoilers. For those of you who could not care, not only are you going to learn all about this bizarre little vampire story from John Aidil de Linkest, and by the way, we want to apologize in advance if we mispronounce any names, because after all, we are stupid Americans. You will also hear Shallon pull a take-home Kanye on me, and you will hear Shallon's review of Linkest's second novel, Handling the Undead, which I have not read. Our next goal is to watch Mama, the new Guillermo del Toro extravaganza that is either scaring people silly or making them laugh unintentionally, depending on which reviewer you read. We will report back and tell you what's actually true. And now then, with no further delay, the return of Shallon Hurlbert in the, quote, live, unquote, portion of this podcast. Well, hello, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome once again to the, quote, live, unquote, portion of this column. My buddy Shallon Hurlbert is here again with me. Hello, everyone. And we are going to be talking about Let Me In, or Let the Right One In, both the book and the two movies that are based on it. The author, Jan Ivade Linkist, is one of my favorite new authors. So he's not actually new, he's been writing for a while, but he's kind of new to American audiences being Swedish. Definitely. Although Swedish novels are kind of a rage right now, thanks to the girl with the dragon tattoo at all. Yes. There's a lot of Scandinavian film and literature that's been pushing its way into the American eyeline. I think that's all to the good. They're making some really good stuff. It really needs to be seen. I prefer Let the Right One In as the title, because it's actually referenced in the book as the a Morrissey, lyric from right. Morrissey. Yeah. 
And it's the song which has a kind of a thematic match to some of the relationships in the book. Whereas Let Me In seem more of a descriptor of how a vampire has to be asked into a person's house in order to be able to enter. Which no doubt is what the American producers thought the American audience would be able to grasp. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of you in the American audience who are tired of getting talked down to, Speak out, say something, go see smart movies. Yes. I have read the book recently. Shallon loaned it to me, no doubt in the scripted portion of this, I will be giving more details to how that came about. Something that was fascinating to me, having seen both movies before I read the book, was how much darker and starker and more gruesome and upsetting the events in the book were compared to anything that really happened in either movie. Right. I, I think the movie did a really good job of Which grasping movie? both of them, I thought. Grasped the relationship between the two kids pretty well. I, I, think, I would agree with that. I think Let the Right One In did a much better job. There was a much deeper connection and chemistry between the actors in that. And I don't know if that just has to do with their talents or what. But I, I just felt a real friendship there. And the almost desperate way that they cling to each other is much more heartfelt to me. But I think that in both movies, they really did a good job of creating that friendship. Well, what's very interesting, and you really see it in the book, and it is conveyed, I guess, reasonably well in both movies. I tend to favor the Swedish version. Let, let the me right too. One in. Me too. Both... Oscar, the young boy who is the human protagonist, and Ely, the vampire protagonist, who is not precisely young, but is kind of frozen in a childhood state because of how the character became a vampire. Both of them are lonely, they've been abused, they're delightfully surprised when somebody actually seems interested in them for who they are and shows compassion. And the fact is, this is something that they do for each other. It's not something that they're getting anywhere else. Right. Something just occurred to me as we're talking about this, the concept of immortality and the way it's portrayed in a lot of more modern vampire movies as sort of romantically tragic that, you know, as you grow, the people you love grow old and die and you stay the same. There is that in there, but I think it's oh, addressed... All the poor vampires right, must, right. must watch all their food <clears throat> wilt away. Right. <laughs> and in this... I think they portrayed the pain of immortality a little bit better in that it's not the watching people grow old and die that's the painful part. It's the fact that as people age, they change, and the relationship that you have with someone as you age, if you aren't actually aging, becomes mired in human mores and the way that people view you and the way that you're viewed by the person you're in relationships with. Ely's friendship with Oscar, or if you're watching the American movie Abby's to Owen, is very cute and very beautiful, but at the same time very sinister. Because even though Ely is reaching out to this boy because they're similar in quote-unquote ages... He is a replacement for someone who was once a childhood friend as well. Actually. In the movie. 
Right. In the book, it's much different. But in the movies, it addresses that in an odd way. In the American version, it basically explicitly asserts that that is what is going on. Right. She chose a friend who helped her out, and now he's old, and she's uncomfortable with that relationship and begins developing a relationship with someone closer to her physical age. Yeah, and the American movie definitely takes that tech. I believe it's been a while since I've seen it. The Swedish version is much more ambiguous. Right. It doesn't really and, explain. And in the book, it's very clear that it's something quite different. Absolutely different and much more sinister. Yes. Um, it makes the relationship between Ely and Oscar much more heartfelt and honest. I was going to say, it's not the relationship between Ely and Oscar that is much more sinister. Exactly. So much as between Ely and her previous caretaker. Right. And I I don't think it gives too much away to explain that because Ely has the appearance of a very young girl, her ability to fend for herself in the world and live independently is hampered. And so she has to have a proxy to do all the adult things you need to do in order to exist. And the easiest way for her to attract an adult was to lead him into a a pseudo-sexual pedophilic relationship. I wrestle with what pronoun to use precisely because if you read the book, you know that Ely isn't really a girl. The Swedish film does not explain what exactly is going on with Ely's gender, but it does. You have that infamous crop shot. That, yes. That, that hints that, that there's something... Hints that there's something quite different about Ely. It doesn't explain what it is. What it is in the book, it is explained, and it is a very <laughs> it's, gruesome thing to read. <laughs> right, and it explains a lot as to Ely's trauma, trauma, and separation from the ability to interact with other human beings, and especially adult human beings. And I think that that it also adds to her ability to victimize adults. Without remorse. Because of what an adult did to her once upon a time. Exactly. Right. And I don't struggle with the pronoun as much because, to me, when reading the book and watching the Swedish version of the movie, it's clear that Ely, or Ellie, has chosen to identify with the female gender. To present as female. However, in the book, there's a point where Ely reveals to Oscar what happened. And it's in a kind of a telepathic, dream-like connection. Right. And from that point forward in the book, Oscar, who has been referring to her as she, begins saying he, or thinking he, right. in regard to Ely. Another um, interesting thing about that that I found refreshing, and I excuse me if some of our more conservative listeners find this somewhat offensive, but I found that Oscar accepting his love for her, him, regardless of gender, because of the relationship he's built, was a beautiful thing. I agree with that. I mean, it's just loving another human being. And because they're children, there really isn't a sexual aspect to it. And any kind of romantic love that they had between each other is very innocent. Yes. It's very clear that to Oscar, the friendship and the companionship... Transcends sexuality. Yes. It's who Ely is as a person that is important. That's something I really like about Lindquist's work, that uh, he addresses these multifaceted aspects of human behavior, thought, 
morality. And he does it so fluidly that it's like, for instance, right now having this conversation, a lot of it is just rising in my thoughts as I think about it. It wasn't shoved on you like some morality play or anything like that. It's really just who the characters are, and it's very deftly written. Something that I thought was fascinating about the book that I don't feel like you really get from either movie, definitely not from the American version, is Linkus's portrayal of the culture of the town where the events of the story take place seem to me to be very important in that he portrays this community as already being beset by a kind of malaise. People have given up on their own lives. They, they can't get motivated to follow their dreams. It's really a novel about broken people. And bullies thrive. Oscar is constantly preyed upon. Nobody helps him. Right. The eventual resolution of that bullying is more violence. Oh, yes. It's not something where he rises above it. He's victimized the final time, and the bullies meet a very gory and, i got to admit, satisfying end. Now, having just read the book, I can tell you here's a big difference between the book and the two movies. The book, you don't see that resolution. It takes place off stage. You, you read about the start of it, and you read about the results afterward. Now, both movies visualize what happened in a very clever way. Yes. Although the American version more or less copies the Swedish version, so the Swedish version has to get the credit for right. the cleverness. <laughs> One thing I like about the fact that there were two movies made is that the director at least if I remember correctly, he had stated that when making the American version, he didn't want to make a remake. He read the book himself and adapted the story, or the screenwriters adapted the story as their own standalone adaptation. Well, see, I read that. This is where I'm kind of down on the American version. I mean, I, I have no real problem with performances of the young well, actors. I, I'll, I'll let you go on in just a second, but Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Beyonce? <laughs> Don't worry, it's... It, in joke. Um, young, <laughs> I, and I'm not in on it. <laughs> the younger internet savvy listeners will get it. What I was going to say is that if you watch both the movies and haven't read the book, you will get more of what's in the book. Because the Swedish movie tends to follow, as a side story, different characters. That's right. Than the American version. That is true. And so you do get to see different sides of what's going on in the town, which I found satisfying as a reader of the book. I saw the American version in the theaters after having seen the Swedish version, and I was disappointed. Part of it was because I had heard ahead of time, oh, you know, the director read the book and made his own movie about it. But a lot of the scenes were almost shot for shot what was in the Swedish film. Yeah. And a lot of the dialogue that Cody and Chloe were reciting. The actors in the American version. The actors in the American version were, they sounded to me like the subtitles that I had read watching the Swedish version. And. Right. And those two actors are the saving grace of that movie. I would agree. Now, the American movie totally backs away from the sexuality issue that we were discussing earlier that is at least alluded to in the Swedish film and very explicit in the book. Chloe Moretz plays a vampire girl. There's no ambiguity as to her gender in the film. I mentioned the infamous crotch shot in the Swedish film. In the American film, that scene is basically treated as, a, oh my god, Owen got to see her naked. <gasps> you know, and you yeah. see you see the big grin on his face. And I, and I remember 
watching that going, oh, that, that doesn't feel right. To yeah, me. yeah, it should have been more. <laughs> yeah. One more thing about the American film. If you read the book, you discover that Ely has all kinds of strange powers. She can transform parts of her body. She's a metamorph, right. I guess you could say. The Swedish film keeps all of that, as I recall, off stage. There's one part in the Swedish film when Oscar and Ely are in the basement and Oscar proposes that they become blood brothers. Right. Blood friends, whatever. Right. He cuts himself, blood spills on the floor. Could be, and, could be blood brothers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, technically, yeah, but, but he doesn't know it at the time. Right. But Ely drops to her knees and begins lapping the blood off the floor. And in the Swedish version, her tongue extends about six extra inches to gotcha. lap up off the floor. And when she raises her head up to tell him to run away, the actress has been replaced with a much older actress. Okay. And so to me, it was like he, in that moment, he saw the aged Ely. Right. Like it, at that moment in that desperation that she was having, whatever control that kept her human was gone. That's the one transformative part in that. Now, the American version, while admittedly, I suppose, restrained by the standards of many American films, actually uses CGI to show Abby transform. And every time it happened, I was just like, wow, that, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not everybody agrees with me on this. Uh, my friend Gemma Files, who's a very accomplished horror writer, thought Let Me In was wonderful. Oh, I, I do like the movie. I, I don't know if wonderful is the word I would put on it, but I enjoy it, and I know I'm going to watch it again at some point. Something that we've sort of danced around here, though, is is a major plot thread from the book that's left out of both movies. <laughs> right, and, and I, I sort of hinted at it a little bit ago about the more pedophile relationship between her caretaker, whose name eludes me right now, and how he came to be her caretaker. The caretaker in the book, it's very explicit that he is a pedophile and that he serves Ely because he is attracted to her, him. The, I, I just found the character's name is Hakan. If you've seen the films, then you know that the caretaker is killed or actually severely injures himself in an attempt to prevent police from identifying him when he's caught. And it's actually out of protection for Ely because if he can be identified, then they can trace him back to his apartment where right. Ely is. And that's another interesting thing in the way that Lingfist portrays Hakan, is that even though he's a pedophile, which is absolutely reprehensible, he does feel a genuine affection for Ely, and Ely feels a genuine affection back towards him. That is definitely the case. Again, this is what I was saying about the book being much more <laughs> disturbing than either of the films. Right. This won't be too much of a spoiler, because if you see the American version, I believe this happens right at the very beginning, or close to... Very close to the beginning. Very yeah. close to the beginning. The caretaker is killed by Ely slash Abby as kind of a mercy killing, except in the book, it doesn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ely fully intends for this to be the end of Hakan, to put him out of his misery and move on. She doesn't quite succeed. They're, they're interrupted is what happens, and she has to flee. And he falls out of the hospital window and seems to be killed by the fall. The body is described in the book as having burst like a water balloon. Right. <laughs> but, you know, vampires come back. <laughs> and because of, I, I can only imagine that because it was sort of a botched killing, botched feeding, that uh, instead of coming back as a vampire 
proper, he comes back as almost a zombie. He's still hungry for blood, but only driven by his most base instincts, which is a very, very bad thing. <laughs> if you're an undead pedophile. Yes. Throughout the rest of the book, he pursues Ely and eventually catches up to her in what is one of the most disturbing moments in the book, because now having become a vampire himself, his strength is on par with hers. But he's yes. an adult. And she's a little girl. Certain types of readers would probably want to trigger warning <laughs> before getting to yeah, that point. Yeah, absolutely. Even that isn't the ultimate culmination of that plot thread. In escaping him, they lock him into a storage unit under the apartment building. And, and unfortunately, a young boy who has been witness to what's going on is hidden in that exact same storage unit. <laughs> and as the rest of the novel plays out, he is trapped with this creature who is unkillable and continually smashes him to death over and over again. And he keeps getting back up. As someone who writes horror myself, when I got to that scene, I had to say, okay... Hats off. Yeah. <laughs> that is some twisted stuff. <laughs> hey, I, I just kept imagining this. I mean, the wound's not healing. This caved-in head, loose mouth, flapping, trying to bite at him and claw at him. And to me, that was the worst, other than the way Ely is created, the worst end to a character in the book. This poor kid is irreparably mentally harmed. Oh, those dark Scandinavians and those long winters, these things they come up with. <laughs> Before we close off here, I wanted to mention that I read his second book, Handling the Undead. Which I have not read, so I defer completely to Shallon. I don't think it was as good as Let Me In, but I still am fascinated by it, and it still comes to my mind. I loved it. But that looks at a zombie, not apocalypse, but a situation, I guess, that arises only in Sweden. And the way that people respond to their loved ones coming back and the depths to which they will dig in order to protect the memory of a person far beyond when that memory is applicable. It's another one that really plays with the questionable morals that humans use to justify what they want and what they feel. And I highly recommend it. It's not as horror as what I would consider a standard horror novel, but it does definitely include some very scary moments. And there is a moment in that where there is an undead creature who's no longer recognizable as human anymore, who has a similar kind of attack, but it's only similar in that it's an undying creature that won't leave someone alone. It's not as disgusting or sinister, it's just it's just hard. Well, it certainly sounds interesting and something that I'll probably want to check out myself. And so that has been your installment of Tour of the Abattoir Swedish Horror Edition. <laughs> and now you have even more things that you know to seek out. And so, till next time, good night. Stay scared, and will you squeal for me, baby? Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Shailen. I very much like the film, Let the Right One In, and yes, I like the film, Let Me In. Well, it was 
pretty decent. I saw the Swedish film in the theater and avoided the home version of it for a while because the subtitles, I was told, did a terrible disservice to the spirit of the dialogue. And, ah, well, the, that one now is in the permanent collection here at Shea Nook, and it has improved on the original. So thanks again, Mike and Shailen. The Ad, The Usual Ad, by The Book. Okay? Okay. Just click on the click place on our site and buy the book, Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. You promise? Okay. Why do I mention this, that which I am about to mention? It's about a television personality from long, long ago, from my childhood. It has nothing to do with terror, with horror. Sally Starr was about fun. Sally Starr, of course, was not her real name. Her real name didn't matter to me when I was a kid because she was the only Sally Starr. Sally was on television, early television. She was a cowgirl like Dale Evans and Sky King's niece, Penny. Sally, though, was blonde. Oh, extremely blonde. White blonde. She carried blondness like a huge smile. And on local television in Philadelphia, she showed cartoons. Who doesn't love cartoons? Popeye Theater. That was the name of her show when I was a kid. Sally Starr dressed in red and white and had stars all over her. I mention her now because I had not thought of her for decades, I guess. I mention her because, for the kids in my back alley, Sally was womankind itself. We made up stories about her. We crafted rumors that played around the edges of good taste with her good name. And because, well, we were all, I guess, a little bit in love with her, in love in a way that was different from the way you loved your mom and your puppy and your sister— and I mention her because last week a friend from Philadelphia reminded me about her and that she was having her 90th birthday that day. I posted a video of her singing. Yes, she sang. She sang well. Uh, the song was a rockabilly piece by Bill Haley. Yes, Bill Haley of the Comets fame. And lots of friends sent notes wishing Sally Starr a happy birthday. Two days later, she was gone from the earth. She is now an echo from long ago, and I wanted to spread that word, the word of my memory of her, Sally Starr, will live on, I guess, until this generation of kids also vanishes. But for now, love, luck, and lollipops, Aunt Sal. Now, are we ready for some fiction? Some good, solid, middle-of-the-country, Midwest horror? Hmm? Well, here it is, straight from the heartland, Indiana. The title is Sensory Desolation, and it was written by William Markley O'Neill. Bill O'Neill is the author of dark comedies, science fiction, fantasy, and most particularly, Tales of the Macabre. His horror story, Bob Bodie's Body Parts, was published in the November 2007 issue of Weird Tales magazine and was reprinted in Weird Tales, the 21st Century, Volume 1. There's more about him. That'll be later. But for now, here 
is sensory desolation. In his modest home in the small American city of Middle Ridge, Indiana, Jack Curtis Carver sat alone at his kitchen table in front of a newly opened bottle of Jack Daniels, a glass, his untouched microwave supper, and the morning newspaper. On the front of the Middle Ridge Daily Messenger were five photographs of young ladies. All the women bore a striking resemblance to each other. All were petite, dark-haired, dark-eyed stunners. Four of the beauties were dead. The fifth went missing two days ago. In his capacity as sheriff of Trinity County, it was Jack's duty to stop a serial killer. The headlines read, Cornfield Killer Still at Large, and Search for Coed Continues, and Lost Daughters Remembered. So far, Sheriff Carver had failed miserably at his job. It all started three months ago, it seemed like a lifetime to Jack. The off-duty lawman poured himself a swallow of whiskey as he stared at the photograph of 19-year-old Diana May Humphreys, the oldest daughter of Josh and Marla Humphreys. At the time of her death, Diana was living at home with her parents and two younger sisters while she attended Ivy Tech, the local community college. Diana's partially nude body was found in a cornfield on Herb Livergood's farm. Her murder was especially disturbing because there hadn't been a slaying in this farming community in almost six years, a fact in which Jack took too much pride. Initial suspicion fell on Diana's old high school sweetheart. No one dreamed, least of all Sheriff Carver, that a serial killer was just getting warmed up in the Hoosier heartland. Jack drank his shot of bourbon and told Diana's smiling photograph, I'm sorry. He looked then at the bridal picture of 21-year-old Carla Consuelo Ortiz Johnson, newlywed wife of Chuck Johnson, manager of the Main Street Pizza King. Her abduction took place two weeks after Diana Humphreys, and the circumstances surrounding her death were eerily similar to those of Diana's. Using ether, the murderer knocked Carla unconscious, bound her, and then transported her to some secret location where he raped and strangled her. It was determined that the Cornfield Killer, a name quickly adopted by the editors of the Daily Messenger, then bathed the corpse, ridding it of all incriminating evidence, before wrapping it in plastic and dumping it in Gabe Wagner's cornfield. Sighing heavily, Jack poured himself another shot of whiskey, bigger than the first, and threw it down his throat. I'm sorry, he told the picture of Carla and her beaming groom. Clutching his chest against the burn of the Jack Daniels, Sheriff Carver looked next at the photograph of 24-year-old Paula Elizabeth Shepard. Paula was both a beautician and a bartender, a popular gal with many friends and at least three lovers. Her father, Scott Shepard, was a prominent businessman, owner of both the Sweet Sleep Motel and Lit Kickers, the bar where Paula worked. Paula's murder sent shockwaves throughout the county. The coroner's examination determined that the cornfield killer sexually abused Paula for at least three days before finally strangling her. Her violated corpse was discovered in Roger Haskell's cornfield. Jack's third shot of whiskey was the biggest yet. 
He told Paula, her parents, and her many admirers, I'm so sorry, and then gulped down three swallows of booze. Through the cloud of his mourning, Jack felt a flash of anger when he realized, I'm not drunk yet. He didn't feel like the alcohol had affected him in the slightest. He poured more bourbon, blurg, 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 as he shifted his focus to the photograph of the fourth victim, discovered just eleven days ago. She was twenty-year-old Julia Page Kendall, the daughter of Douglas Kendall, or Reverend Doug, as he was known around here. Doug and Betty Sue Kendall had four sons, but Julia was their only girl. From his pulpit last Sunday, Reverend Doug called the cornfield killer an agent of hell. Jack couldn't agree more. With every murder, the savagery increased. Julia's body was the most brutalized of them all. Jack Carver threw back three more swallows of Jack Daniels. He belched, winced at an upsurge of heartburn, and then told Julia and the Kendalls, and all their extended family, the seventy-two members of the Hawthorne First Baptist Church, I'm very sorry. Jack's uncle, grandfather, and great-grandfather were all former sheriffs of Trinity County. His cousin Nick was a longtime patrolman on the Middle Ridge Police Department. Jack had lived in this city his entire life. The FBI agents helping with his case were decent enough men, intelligent, highly competent. But when all of this was over, they would ultimately return to Indianapolis. When the dust finally settled and the death count was forever fixed, people around here would blame Jack for the carnage. And even if people didn't blame him, Jack would blame himself. The off-duty sheriff couldn't force himself to look at the last photograph, the one of his goddaughter. Nineteen-year-old Laura Hannah Eaton was the only child of Jack's best friend and next-door neighbor, Dr. Edward Eaton, DDS. Like the cornfield killer's first victim, Diana Humphreys, Laura was living at home while she attended college. She also worked part-time at Home Depot. Jack was the best man at Ed's wedding when he married Joni. Jack was at St. Michael's Hospital on the night Laura was born. Jack was never so proud in his life as when he was made Laura's godfather. A divorced 46-year-old man with no immediate family of his own, Jack had long been like an extended member of the Eaton clan. A month ago, Jack sat across from Laura at the Eaton's dining room table on spaghetti night. She had shuddered at the brief mention of the cornfield killer saying she and all her friends were creeped out by him. Everyone knew not to trust any strangers in the area, which led to the frightening conjecture that the killer knew all his victims. Two nights ago, Laura was driven home by a couple of her friends after going shopping at Cole's. They dropped Laura off in front of her house, right next door, saw her go up onto the porch, but didn't wait until she went inside before driving away. Laura hadn't been seen since. Jack tried to maintain hope that she was still alive. Deep down, he believed the sweetest girl on the planet was probably dead. Bleakly depressed, he poured himself more whiskey. The cuckoo clock in the front hall chirped twelve times, announcing the beginning of a new day. Someone knocked on Jack's front door. Sitting at his kitchen table, barely moving, except for his eyes and his drinking arm, he didn't think he was buzzed at all. When he stood up, however, Jack realized he was drunk. He staggered, feeling dizzy, and plopped back down in his chair, realizing he was very drunk. 
You shouldn't imbibe this much, Sheriff, he muttered, pulling himself to his feet again. Leaving the kitchen, he stumbled through his never-used dining room, out into the front hall, thinking, It's all over now, Jackie boy. That's one of the suits come to tell you Laurie's body has been found. You're about to be needed in your official capacity as Johnny after the disaster, instead of Johnny on the spot. And very soon the entire fucking world is going to learn what a total fuck-up you are. Jack assumed whoever came to his house at this late hour was going to be bearing bad news. The last thing he expected was an offer of help. At the front door, he placed his right eye to the peephole and saw a strange woman standing on his front porch. Jack flipped on the outside light, cranked open the lock, disengaged the deadbolt, and opened the door. The lady on his stoop was dressed in a simple black summer dress. Jack judged her to be approximately thirty years old, five foot two inches tall, weighing no more than a hundred and ten pounds. She was thin and willowy compared to Jack's beefy five foot eleven, two hundred and eighty pound girth. Her silky hair was oily black, cut short, hugging her head, with razor straight bangs riding her tight eyebrows. Her eyes possessed elaborate shades of green. Her complexion was as pale as the moonlight. Capturing Jack with an unblinking, beautiful gaze, the lady said to him, We can help you save Laura Eaton's life. Jack was so startled by this declaration, he took a step back. His drunken right hand instinctively reaching for the gun, he just then realized he wasn't wearing. The woman continued to stare at him, her face stoic, her eyes expressive. Finally, he gathered enough of his drunken wits to ask, What do you mean, we? Who are you? My sisters and I have been wandering. When we came upon your beleaguered community, we were saddened to learn how this cornfield killer has terrorized everyone. We have decided to help. Jack struggled to get into sheriff mode, fighting against the alcohol. With difficulty, speaking slowly so he didn't slur his words, he demanded more information. What's your name? And what do you know about the cornfield killer? The woman's eyes sparkled dramatically as she insisted. Laura is still alive, Sheriff. In the normal course of his life, Jack was usually able to keep a tight rein on his emotions. Lately, however, especially with Laura's abduction, he felt like he was on the verge of an emotional collapse. Tonight, he decided he was going to get drunk and break down. He hadn't cried since Janet asked him for a divorce, but he had intended to cry tonight alone in the dark, except for the ghosts of five young women. Deep down in his heart, he was certain his goddaughter was gone. Now, suddenly, improbably, this bizarre wisp of a person was offering him hope that sweet little Laura was still alive. Tears welled up in his eyes. He turned away from the stranger, not wanting her to see his weakness. And yet, conversely, on another level, not caring if she did. Softly, the woman said, Aren't you going to invite me in, Sheriff Carver? Hearing her call him Sheriff Carver restored some of the professionalism he'd sacrificed to guilt and Jack Daniels. Yes, uh, of course, replied the long-time lawman. He stepped back, waving her forward. Come on in. She introduced herself. My name is Clara Sensora. An owl gave a strange, pained hoot from a nearby tree as she entered Jack's home. The next day, as usual, 
Sheriff Carver had absolutely nothing meaningful to contribute to the Cornfield Killer investigation. FBI agents Cooper Smith and Creasy conducted the morning meeting with Jack and his deputies. The law enforcers worked the connections again, reviewing what they already knew. Two of the victims went to the same church. Two were friends. Two others, including Laura, attended classes at Ivy Tech. No comprehensive connection could be made between all five women. Then Agent Coopersmith looked at Jack and said, Tell me about Bullet Lake. What about it? How many summer cottages would you guess are located there? The body of water in question was a small lake in the eastern section of Trinity County. Jack answered Coopersmith, I don't know, maybe a hundred fifty? I guess roughly half of those are owned locally and the rest belong to summer people. I got a cabin on the lake, volunteered Deputy Trotonowski. Jack nodded. So do I, he asked Agent Coopersmith. Why? Coopersmith explained. Still assuming our boy is a local man, very likely someone who's well-known in the community, we should consider the possibility he could be using a summer cottage as his kill zone. We need to canvas the seasonal residences around the lake. Okay, said Jack, unwilling to object to anything Coopersmith suggested, even, as in this instance, when Jack believed he was wrong. Miserably, he thought, our boy is not vacationing on the lake. Agent Creasy, not Jack, gave everyone their assignments for the day. Then Agent Coopersmith, not Carver, adjourned the meeting. All day long, Sheriff Carver kept thinking about Clara Sensora's offer to help. From the moment he woke up that morning, he knew that he would accept the sister's assistance. But all day he continued to play mental games with himself, acting as if he hadn't made up his mind yet. Then, at just past 4.30 p.m., an anonymous tip was phoned in to the sheriff's office. The unidentified male caller claimed that Laura Eaton's corpse could be found in the barn of a farmer named Larry McCambridge. The moment Jack heard the tip, he said, It's bullshit. Deputy Trojanowski asked, How do you know? Because he said Larry's barn, not his cornfield? Right, said Jack. But what he thought was, I know Laura isn't dead. He believed she was still alive because what of Clara Sensora had told him late the night before. Sheriff Carver and Deputy Trojanowski rode out to Larry McCambridge's pig farm to check out the tip. As Jack had predicted... It was a false lead. On the drive back to Middle Ridge, Sheriff Carver told Deputy Trojanowski, Laura is still alive. Non-committal, Trojanowski asked, You honestly think so? Without hesitation, Jack said, Yes, I honestly do. And he realized that was the first time throughout this entire investigation that he had felt confident about anything. It was a remarkable feeling. It was also at that moment that the sheriff stopped kidding himself about what he'd do when Clara Sensora brought the rest of her sisters to call on him. Jack Carver sat at his kitchen table in front of a bottle of Jack Daniels, a half-filled glass, and a partially consumed microwave dinner. He was nervous, anticipating the Sensora sisters' arrival. He arrived home just after 10.30 p.m., and it was now fully midnight. As the antique German cuckoo clock in his front hallway heralded the beginning of the witching hour, there came a loud rapping on Jack's front door. Jack hurried to greet his guests. He wasn't as drunk as the previous night, not by a long shot, 
but he was inebriated enough that, for just a moment when he opened the front door, he thought he was seeing double, until he realized there were five women on his stoop, not four. All five of the sisters were dressed identically in long black gowns, and all five had absolutely identical features. Fleetingly, he wondered if they were quintuplets or clones. A brisk gust of wind blew past the ladies, caressing their hair and tickling their skirts. Jack smelled a complex mixture of perfume, potent enough to make him feel momentarily light-headed, particularly because there was a faint underscent of something rotten. Clara stepped forward, her expression blank. So, she asked, what have you decided, Sheriff? Will you avail yourself of our talents? Jack surprised himself by asking a question of his own, one that had skipped across his consciousness several times today. Are you psychics, the way you claimed? Or are you really... He suddenly felt extremely foolish saying the final word. Witches? Two of the same-faced sisters appeared amused. Another looked indignant. Clara remained motionless, saying, You can be the judge of that, Sheriff, after you saved Laura's life. Deep in his heart, Jack felt it was a mistake to trust these women. He wished suddenly he had run a background check on them today. Sheepishly, he asked, Would you all be willing to give me your social security numbers? One woman snickered. The indignant-looking sister shot him a contemptuous glare. But Clara simply nodded and said, Certainly, Sheriff. We'll be happy to provide you with everything you need. After a silent moment of hesitation, Jack stepped back from the door and invited the women to come in. One of the identical women moved forward, giving a slight bow of her head. I am Ivata Sensora, she said. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Carver. She slipped past him into his house. The next sister, the angry one, identified herself simply as Ivona. The third lady winked at him. I'm Flora. She brushed up against his side as she entered, purring, Hello, Jack. Hell, his voice cracked. Oh. The final sister introduced herself. I am Lucia. You already know me, said Clara, stepping inside. She took Jack's arm, leading him into the house. Come, Sheriff. Let's help your goddaughter. Four of his five senses... Taste, touch, sight, and hearing were stripped away. Existence was reduced to nothing but smell. Sweat, overpowering waves of rank body odor, hints of urine and feces, fried chicken, ketchup, mold. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Dampness must concrete earth. And very faintly... Lilacs. Finally, there was a smell overlaid on top of all these others, a kind of non-scent that was distinctive nonetheless. It was the stench of female fear. Swimming up through the darkness, returning to himself, Jack gasped like he'd been underwater. Rolling off his dusty dining room table, he looked from one sister to the next, demanding to know, what the hell was that? Slumping in a chair, Clara appeared to be in some kind of trance. Her mouth was half open, her eyes half closed, an expression of neutral bliss on her face. To Jack, she looked like a heroin addict who just got her fix. Is she okay? he asked. Yes, said Ivara, using a handkerchief to wipe drool off Clara's lips. Facilitating the visions takes a toll on us. Again, Jack asked, what just happened? Ivana sighed. I thought Clara explained all this to you last night. Jack nodded. She did, but... He tittered nervously, wiping sweat off his forehead. Flora explained. Each of us channels a different sense. So what I just smelled, that really was... Ivada quietly finished the sentence for him. That's what Laura is smelling right now. A sob nearly broke out of his mouth with the words, She really is alive. We told you that said Ivona. I want to make some notes, he informed them. Then, pointing at Clara, he asked again, Are you certain she's okay? Yes. Go record your notes, Sheriff. We'll be ready for the second sense when you are through. Jack hurried into his study, where he grabbed a pen and notebook to write down all the smells that he, Laura, just experienced. Twenty minutes later, Clara was herself again. Jack stretched out atop his round dining room table, his feet sticking off it. The Sensora sisters surrounded him, with Ivara now next to his face. The woman formed a circle, linking hands, the two sisters next to Ivara clasping onto her shoulders. Gently, Ivara placed her fingers around Jack's head. Are you ready, Mr. Carver? Which sense will it be this time? Taste. He wished they would skip right to sight, but Clara explained last night that they need to build up to the more difficult senses by conquering the less complex first. Unfortunately, 
Jack wouldn't be seeing or hearing as Laura until tomorrow night. On the agenda for tonight were smell, taste, and touch. Ivada asked again, Are you ready, Mr. Carver? Yes, said Jack, surrendering his mind. Once again his identity was stripped away. Senses were again robbed from him, all but taste. Crispy french fries drenched in salt and dipped in ketchup. The fries were followed by a drink of Coca-Cola, spiked with vodka. After a brief pause, she, he, tasted her favorite food, fried chicken breast, and Jack recognized the unique taste of the breading. The meal continued, chicken, french fries, and a Coke. Until finally... Jack Carver returned to his own head. The sudden flood of additional senses caused him to gasp. The red brick house! He immediately shouted with excitement. Clara looked at him with a raised eyebrow. It's a local mom-and-pop restaurant, very popular around here. Sitting up, he unconsciously licked his lips, tasting phantoms of the food. They have the most distinctive breading on their chicken. Clara smiled. I take it this information is helpful? Yes. Jack was so thrilled he nearly laughed. I couldn't tell if it was hot or cold, but it certainly tasted fresh. And that confirms that our boy... The cornfield killer, I mean. He's still got to be holed up someplace close to Middle Ridge. Jack hopped off the table, even as Ivada flopped down in a chair, droopy-eyed and drooling, to be attended by her sisters. Seeing him look at her, Clara said, She'll be fine. Do you wish to take more notes, Sheriff? Yes. We'll be ready again when you're through. And they were. The next clairvoyant contact was so disturbing to him, Jack would eventually suppress all memory of it. Later in his life, during times of extreme stress, the experience of becoming a helpless woman who was being raped by a powerful man would gurgle up into his nightmares and invariably cause him to wake up screaming. Laura's hands were tied together and secured above her head. The coarse rope had cut sharply into her wrists, causing them to bleed. She, Jack was sick to her, his, stomach. Her, his, head throbbing from the effects of the vodka. She, he, was alternately hot, then cold. She was naked, as was the beast on top of her, the animal who was inside her. She hurt. He was rough, and he was hurting her. A wet tongue was shoved into her mouth. Jack felt it all, for as long as it lasted, which seemed like an eternity. He took away virtually nothing of value from the trauma. He already knew Laura was alive from the moment he shared his first sense, smell. All this third connection garnered him was the horrific knowledge that his poor, helpless goddaughter was being used as a sex toy. Jack scrambled off his dining room table and raced for the bathroom, barely making it in time to vomit into the toilet. It was several minutes before he was able to stop trembling. After dousing his face with cold water and toweling it dry, Jack returned to the dining room. When Clara saw him, she reminded Jack, I warned you that it would be distressing. I don't think you ever once used the word distressing, lady, was what he thought. What he said was, I know, it's okay. Snidely, Ivona said, You look white as a ghost. Clara declared, We have to stop now anyway. We do, asked Lucia. The sense of touch was brought to him by Flora, who was now half comatose and slobbering like an overheated hound. Ivada assured him, We'll be back tomorrow night. 
If that's what you want, added Lucia. Clara asked, Is that what you want, Sheriff? Yes, he said emphatically, but... What? Will she last that long? Laura will still be alive by this time tomorrow night, won't she? Snappishly, Ivana responded, We're clairvoyant, not precognitive. Clara said, We can't be certain, but we suspect the odds are good. Nevada smiled. Perhaps what you've learned tonight will be enough to save Laura. Right, said Ivona, in a sarcastic tone. Maybe you won't even need us anymore. Jack actually had hope that maybe I won't. You look tired, Mr. Carver, said Ivada. He admitted, I'm exhausted. We'll say good night, then, said Lucia. She and Ivona helped Flora to her feet, dragging her out of the room. Clara gave a little bow before exiting, saying, Until tomorrow night, Sheriff. Good luck. Jack nodded. Thanks. He ushered the women to his front door, gushing, Thank you very much. As soon as they were gone, he hurried to take a long, hot shower. Under the steaming spray, unwillfully reliving the assault that he and Laura just went through, he wept like a girl. The next day, Jack was a changed man. After the mandatory morning meeting with the suits, in which he questioned nothing Coopersmith suggested, he pulled aside his two best men, Deputy Lortz and Deputy Trojanowski. Outside the station in the back parking lot, Jack told them his lies. I got a tip last night, phoned in directly to my home. I think it's credible and we need to pursue it. And I'm thinking we'll just keep it between the three of us, so the credit for getting our boy stays local. He looked at Lortz, the more difficult of the two. If you know what I'm saying. Trojanowski responded, We do. Lortz only nodded, but he did it while looking Jack squarely in the eyes and that was good enough for the sheriff. Jack instructed his men to question employees of the Red Brick House about men who came in yesterday, especially near closing time last night, to purchase carry-out fried chicken and fries, presumably for two. The only benefit derived from being brutally raped was that Jack could now call the maniac Our Boy with utter conviction. The killer was male. Later, just after 4 p.m., Jack made a statement to the press. For the first time in his life, he went before television cameras feeling confident. He told the representatives of the world that his men were actively working promising new leads. He also stated emphatically, At this point, we still believe Laura Eaton is alive. After the press briefing back in his office, Jack had an unpleasant conversation with agents Coopersmith and Creasy. Creasy began with an accusation in the form of a question. Are you holding back on us, Sheriff? Jack tried to look surprised. I don't know what you're talking about. Coopersmith said, If you have any ideas about our boy, any additional information, it would be counterproductive not to share it with us, Jack. Carver didn't like the suits calling him by his first name. I'm aware of that, Trent. Trent Coopersmith frowned. Apparently he wasn't crazy about his first name being used either. Creasy oozed with suspicion as he said, you're different today. Oh, said Jack, how so? Your attitude has changed, said Creasy. Are you certain there isn't something you'd like to share with us, Sheriff? asked Coopersmith. Nope, said Jack. Okay, said Coopersmith.
Creasy scowled. Shortly past 7 p.m., Jack received a call on his cell phone. His ringtone was the theme from the television show Hawaii Five-O. As was his habit, he answered the phone by saying, Book em, Dano. Ed Eaton didn't bother with any opening pleasantries. I saw you on the news earlier. What's this about new leads, Jack? What's going on? The sheriff reminded his best friend, You know I can't discuss details of the investigation with you. The dentist whined like one of his drills. But Jack! Jack winced. I know how hard all this is on you and Joni. Believe me, I do. Just hang in there, okay? You seem so different on the news tonight. Everyone was talking about it. I was just wondering what changed. There must be some pretty significant new leads, huh? Jack wanted desperately to give his friend hope, but he didn't think it was a good idea to mention that his new informants were psychics. So he told Ed the same lie he told his deputies, after soliciting a promise from his friend that he would keep the information top secret. Someone called in a tip to my house last night. She claimed that... He shied away using the words cornfield killer. The person we're looking for ate chicken at the red brick house last night. You're kidding me! Ed sounded stunned. That's great news, right? Doesn't that give you leads to track? It sure does, said Jack. We're talking to everyone who works at the red brick house. We're getting close, Ed. After a long pause on the phone. That's great news, buddy. I probably said too much. Keep this under your hat, okay? Okay, I understand. Ed's voice cracked as he asked, So you really think Laura's still alive? I do. And this informant who called you? You said it was a woman? Yes. Ed whimpered, Who can it be? I don't know, but I'll find out. Jack asked, How's Joni holding up? Not great. She's all drugged up on Valium most of the time. We're sleeping. She sleeps way too much. Jack flashed suddenly on what it had felt like to get raped the previous night, and he was shaken by the viciousness of the recollection. Jack? Sweating, grimacing, Jack swallowed, his eyes closed. He fought against the memory. A pulse of static interrupted the conversation, loud enough for Jack to pull his cell phone away from his ear. He regained control of his emotions as the connection cleared. Jack? Yeah, I'm here. I know you're doing everything you can, my friend. I'm grateful. All the insecurities of the previous days threatened to break down a dam just recently built around his heart. So Jack ended the conversation by asking, You're not working, right? Hell no! I can't work. The office is closed indefinitely. I'll call you if I learn anything else, promised the sheriff. Okay, said the dentist. When he hung up, Jack whispered, Hang in there, Laura. It'll all be over soon. He thought of the Sensora sisters and had hope. Jack Carver sat at home at his kitchen table in front of a new bottle of Jack Daniels, a filled glass, and two empty microwave dinner containers. His appetite had been enormous. Once again, he drank to take the edge off. He found it hard to sit still. He paced a lot, thinking about Laura. Jack knew that this evening he would see through his goddaughter's eyes, and, with any luck, the identity of the cornfield killer would finally be revealed. The cuckoo clock in his front hallway chirped twelve times. As a new day darkly began, there was a tapping on his front door.
Jack Carver hurried to greet his saviors. He rolled onto his dining room table, lying flat on his back, with his head pointed west. The Sensora sisters encircled the table. With a discernible lack of tenderness, Ivana Sensora placed her hands over Jack's ears. Are you ready? she asked. Before he could answer, four of his five senses were blasted apart by a thunderclap. Moaning, coming from Laura. Her, his, breathing, a raspy accompaniment to a hammering heartbeat. A snap, a rattle, creaking hinges, a heavy door swinging open. All of this coming from above her. The creak was reversed, the door shut. Whomp! Heavy footfalls descended a wooden staircase. The approaching person was whimpering louder than Laura was. His goddaughter, Jack, began to cry. Please! Please! She slurred her speech because of drugs and alcohol. Her voice barely audible. She pleaded for him to... Stop! I can't stop, honey, said the sniffling cornfield killer. I mustn't stop! His voice was strained from holding back sobs. This has to be done! Please, 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 said Laura, getting louder with each repetition. She heard the thunk scuttle of two shoes, boots, being kicked off. No! Why do you fight me, baby? said the monster, sounding terribly sad. Don't you know how much I love you? The sound of a belt buckle being unhitched, a zipper being pulled down, the soft fluddle of clothes hitting the floor. Don't you see how much I love you? Please, Daddy, no! The jack inside Laura was so shocked he nearly became himself again. Daddy has to, Laura. Daddy needs you. There was no mistaking the voice this time. Once again, Jack's mind popped to the top of their pooled identity, like a hot fish bobber on a cold lake. In a very clear voice, Laura said, I can't feel anything anymore. Dr. Edward Eaton, DDS, sighed heavily. Perhaps that's for the best. Bed springs squeaked as additional weight was added to them. Laura quietly wept. In a husky voice, very close to her, his, ear, Ed declared, I adore you, sweetheart. Sheriff Jack Carver had heard more than enough. He bounded off the table, nearly knocking both Ivara and Flora over. Oh, my God, he shouted. Oh, my God, no! What? began Clara. He cut her off, wailing, Ed is the cornfield killer! Jack dug into his pockets for a cell phone and realized he didn't have it on him. You have to go, he said to Clara. I'm, I'm sorry, but I need to go. Clara looked over at Ivona, who was slack-faced and sluggish. It'll be a few minutes before my sister regains her composure. Do what you have to do, Sheriff. We can lock up behind us. I take it you know this Ed person? Jack laughed shrilly, tears springing up in his eyes. He's my best friend! He dashed to his china cabinet where he had both his gun and his cell phone. He picked up his weapon first, checking to make sure it was loaded. Pushing a lump of emotion deeper down his throat, he told Clara, He lives next door! Flora exclaimed, How horrible! Exactly, Jack agreed with her. He flipped his cell phone open and called the station. Connecting to Deputy Sean, his man on the night watch, Jack gushed, I know who our boy is! Of course, Sean wanted to know, Who is it? Unable to say Ed's name, Jack rasped, 
It's my neighbor. After soliciting a promise from Shahin to send backup, Jack ended the call. Vividly, he remembered Lara saying, Please, Daddy, no. As he dashed out of the dining room into his front hall, he told the sisters, No need to lock up. Just let yourselves out. He rushed out his front door shouting, And thanks! Jack lived on East 5th Street in a residential neighborhood 12 blocks east of downtown Middleridge. Mailboxes and old maple trees lined the sidewalk next to the street, causing short and tall shadows. Lamp poles bathed the rows of two-story houses in pale orange light. His gun leading the way, Jack carried off his own property onto the Eaton's front lawn. Tasting chicken from the red brick house, Jack remembered all that sweaty weight on top of him. Ed's weight. Thoughts zipped through his head at twice their usual speed. He knew Ed at a large basement, which included an enclosed workshop where he kept all his tools. Jack imagined Laura locked up down there, not twenty yards from where Jack sleeps. Worried for Joni, too, he suddenly remembered what Ed said earlier about his wife being doped up on Valium all the time. He wondered, is that what he's got Laura on? After hurrying up the five steps onto Ed's front porch, Jack hesitated. He knew he should wait for backup. Obviously, Ed was not only deranged, he was dangerous. Fearing for Laura, Jack kicked in the Eaton's front door. He didn't bother calling out any names. The house was dark, but he knew where the light switches were. Instead of heading upstairs to the bedrooms, where he hoped Joni was snuggled up safe in bed, Jack crept through the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, flipping on lights as he went. In the back laundry room, he opened the door that led to the basement stairs. Below, the light was already on. Jack charged down the basement steps, trying to look everywhere at once, fearful Ed might be hiding behind the furnace. Unconsciously biting his lower lip, the sheriff crept over to the room where Ed kept his power tools. He put his ear up against the door and heard nothing, especially no cries from Laura. His heart sinking fast, Jack kicked in the door. He was so startled by what he saw, he nearly shot it. Surrounded by Black & Decker products, Joni Eaton hung from the ceiling, a handmade noose around her neck. Her wrists were tied together behind her back. She was dressed in plain pink pajamas. One foot was bare, the other was wearing both a sock and a fuzzy yellow slipper. Her eyes were open, bulging, and permanently glazed with the pain and terror of being slowly strangled. Jack remembered telling Ed on the phone that his new informant was a woman. At that time, he had no inkling he was talking to the cornfield killer. Only now, in retrospect, did he realize he was directly responsible for Joni's murder. Jack's knees went weak. He stumbled, then slumped against the wall, unable to take his eyes off Joni. He bawled, both sad and mad at his own stupidity. I'm sorry, Joni, he thought. I didn't know. I didn't mean to get you killed. He recalled telling Ed that the cornfield killer ate at the red brick house. He imagined Ed knowing that Joni knew where he ate. He imagined his best friend stringing his wife up by the neck. Jack was still crying ten minutes later when his deputies found him. When the suits arrived at the crime scene and questioned him, Sheriff Carver told more lies. Jack claimed to have realized Ed was the killer because of something he let slip when they spoke last night on the phone. Agent Creasy wanted to know, What was it he said that made you suspicious? Jack's imagination failed him. Unable to concoct a credible lie, he answered. I can't say exactly. It was the way he sounded, I guess. Coopersmith gave him a dubious look. How did he sound, exactly? 
remorseful, guilty, scared. That was how Jack felt. The suits didn't press him any further. The connections that previously eluded the investigators were now obvious. Paul Shepard was Joni Eaton's hairdresser. The other three women, Diana Humphreys, Carla Johnson, and Julia Kendall, were all Ed's patients. Further, all the farms where the bodies were dumped, all those families also went to Dr. Eaton. Later, Herb Livergood's oldest son, Johnny, would distinctly remember Ed questioning him about the layout of their family's farm while waiting for the anesthetic to kick in before Johnny's root canal. At one point, when Jack realized he still didn't know where Ed was holed up, he thought of the Sensora sisters. He slipped back over to his house, only to discover that they had already left. He kicked himself in the ass for leaving them so abruptly. He had no way of contacting them. And he now believed he was going to need them yet again. He had so many regrets. At numerous times during the night, he had to fight off more tears. At just past 4 a.m., as the county coroner was finishing up, at the prompting of Coopersmith and Creasy, Jack provided more information about the cornfield killer, his best friend, including the fact that Eaton's owned a small houseboat kept docked at Freddy's Marina on Bullet Lake. After waking Judge Carlson and quickly obtaining a search warrant, Jack led an expedition to the boat. Nearly two hours were wasted. Nothing of significance was found. As the sun rose on a new day... Having been up all night, the suits and Jack's men argued about whether or not to release Ed's identity to the media. Deputy Trojanowski brought up how John Allen Muhammad and John Lee Malvo, the snipers who terrorized the East Coast back in 2002, were captured just hours after their identities were made public. Agent Creasy then pointed out that Muhammad and Malvo didn't have a captured woman in their custody at the time. The worry was that if Ed knew the jig was up, he would kill Laura, then himself. Deputy Lortz pointed out, he may have already done that, for all we know. Jack said virtually nothing. All the confidence he felt yesterday had bled away. Eventually, Coopersmith made the decision to delay telling the world the true identity of the cornfield killer. In the middle of the afternoon, Jack finally caught a nap in his office. He slept fitfully, plagued by bad dreams. That night, as the sun set on the city of Middle Ridge, Indiana, Dr. Edward Eaton, DDS, remained at large. Jack's microwave dinner sat untouched on his kitchen table. A mostly consumed bottle of whiskey in his hand, he paced relentlessly, unable to sit still. Repeatedly he prayed to God that the Sensora sisters would return tonight at the regular time. Not that he had much hope anymore. Jack now pessimistically believed this ordeal would end with still more death. As the clock cuckooed midnight, he opened his front door even before Clara knocked. He was enormously relieved to see the sisters had returned. Finally, sight. And yet, when he finally saw as Laura, what he saw filled him with despair. Her eyes barely open. For five interminable long minutes, he just stared at the ceiling. He could tell she was in a basement or some kind of cellar. A naked light bulb hung from above. But he saw nothing else, nothing that could tell him where Laura was. And yet he did sense something familiar, even before she finally turned her head. The jack inside Laura found himself looking at... himself. The photograph was taken at one of the happiest moments of Jack's life. It was back when he was still married to Janet, back before things went sour between them. 
Jack was pictured holding up a ten-pound largemouth bass, the big one that didn't get away. He was wearing a pair of bib overalls, his hair was a fright, and he was grinning ear to ear. The photograph was taken by Ed just before the turn of the millennium. It belonged in Jack's cabin beside Bullet Lake. Jack realized it was now hanging on a wall in the storm cellar behind that cabin. Ed, completely naked, reached his hands down and pulled Laura's face up so she was looking at him. The cornfield killer smiled down at his daughter, victim, before he began kissing her. Jack severed the connection. He knew where they were. He didn't make the same mistake he did last night. Before dashing out of his house, he asked Clara, When this is all over, how will I get in contact with you? We'll contact you, Sheriff. He hesitated, and Clara said, Go, save the girl's life. As he left, Jack did pause long enough to say, Thank you. He shifted eye contact from one sister to the next. For everything. Lucia smiled. This is going to be a great place to live. Jack put the women behind him, both literally and figuratively. Rushing to his cruiser, he drove the twelve blocks from his house to the station. He didn't run with his siren on, but he employed his lights as he raced downtown. He knew he should have backup, but he had every intention of doing this alone. He didn't plan on arresting Ed. At the station, he retrieved a 12-gauge tear gas gun and numerous canisters. He used the station's back door and didn't have to explain much to Sean. Driving west out of Middle Ridge, speeding to over a hundred miles an hour, Jack turned on his siren. Five minutes later, when he saw moonlight on shimmering waters, he turned it off. His window was rolled down and Jack could both smell and hear the lake. Bullfrogs in the bulrushes rumped and honked, joining the vast night chorus of crickets and cicadas. As he turned right off County Road 360 North onto a rough gravel lane beside Bullet Lake, he extinguished his flashing lights. He drove a curvy, winding course until he eventually arrived at the cabin built by his great-great-grandfather. It was a secluded spot, nestled between groups of trees, with the nearest neighbor over a quarter of a mile away. This cabin was the setting of some of Jack's fondest childhood memories. Now, as he pulled up in front of the old summer house and parked, he realized this was the perfect location to commit murder. Jack donned his gas mask, loaded a couple canisters into his tear gas gun, and exited the vehicle. It was a bright night. The moon was nearly full. He had no difficulty seeing. Cautiously, quickly, he circled the cabin, scanning the windows for any sign of life. He didn't see any. Everything inside was dark. In the backyard, he was staggered by a familiar scent when he saw the old lilac bush, almost directly beside the entrance to the storm cellar. He remembered smelling that same fragrance when Clara and Sora gave him access to Laura's nose. Seeing the padlock on the cellar door was missing, Jack knew Ed was inside. Thinking about shooting a man he had known and loved for better than twenty-five years caused Jack to choke up. Then, suddenly, he was enraged, furious at Ed, furious at himself, furious at the wicked, awful world. Instead of pausing to rein in his emotions, he allowed his anger to spur him into action. Sheriff Carter threw open the cellar door, aimed his rifle down the stairs, and shot two canisters of tear gas. He then dropped the tear gas gun and pulled his revolver. Unconsciously holding his breath, he charged down the stairs. He heard them coughing, both Ed and Laura, 
She's still alive. His footfalls were stomping loud on the stairs, nearly as noisy as his tromping heart. The lighting was dim, the smoke was thick, and at first, Jack didn't see his quarry. He rushed forward, gun raised, until he finally spotted a figure in the fog. Tears streaming down his face, Sheriff Jack Carver crept forward, asking his friend, Why, Ed? Why? Somehow, through his hacking, Edward Eaton still managed to whine, She made me do it, Jack. She made me. Enraged, roaring like a wounded grizzly bear, the sheriff opened fire on the dentist, emptying his gun. Four of the six bullets struck Ed. Of those four, one hit him squarely in the nose, flattening it before annihilating his brains. The cornfield killer dropped dead to the floor. A single sob escaped Jack's throat, only to be trapped inside his gas mask. For a moment, he just stood there, stunned. Then, hearing Laura's continuous coughing, he holstered his gun and went to rescue the sole surviving member of the Eaton family. Seeing her on the folding metal bed, nude, her hands tied to a hook that Ed installed into the concrete wall, Jack remembered what it felt like to be her when Laura was being raped. His voice was shaky as he sought to reassure his goddaughter, It's me, Laura. It's Jack. It's all over now. You're safe. Continuing to cough, Laura didn't acknowledge his presence. Jack quickly untied her. When he scooped her into his arms, he was frightened by how little she weighed. It's okay, sweetie. It's all over. I'm going to get you out of here. Laura's eyes were partially open, glazed over with tears. She hung limp in Jack's arms. He covered her eyes as he carried her past her father's corpse. Jack then dashed up the stairway, exiting the smoky storm cellar, returning to the humid lakeside air. Collapsing to a sitting position on the ground, Jack rocked Laura in his arms, trying to soothe her. He quickly realized something was terribly wrong. Pulling off his gas mask, he beseeched her, Laura, Laura, talk to me, say something. Stupidly, he asked, Are you all right? Laura showed no signs of having heard him. Look at me, he shouted, but her eyes remained unfocused. Panicked, he remembered Clarice and Sora saying he could save Laura's life. And he did save her. But at what cost? Laura, he shouted, giving her a violent shake. She flumped about like a rag doll. Jack grabbed her arm, using his fingernails to pinch her as hard as he could. She didn't even flinch. No, shouted Jack, realizing the horror of what had happened. God damn it to hell! He pinched her again, this time on her cheek, squeezing hard, raising a big red welt there. Again, she failed to react. Her blind eyes were clearing of tears, but not their blank stare. He remembered her saying, I can't feel anything anymore. She couldn't feel because, at that point, Jack had already robbed her of her sense of touch. The well-meaning, insecure sheriff realized that when he linked minds with Laura, he didn't borrow her senses. He helped the Sensora sisters steal them, permanently. Thanks to him, his goddaughter was a vegetable. He shook her violently, shrieking, Say something! When Laura remained defiantly incoherent, Jack clasped his big hands around her thin neck. He won't let her live like this, an untouchable mind locked inside an unfeeling body. It would be inhuman to let her live like this. As Jack squeezed the life out of beautiful little Laura, 
The battered, drugged, senseless young woman reacted to having her air cut off. She thrashed and kicked, but only very briefly. Pressing his thumbs hard into her windpipe, Jack begged, Forgive me, sweetie. Laura Eaton died by her godfather's hand. When she was gone, Jack sat down in the grass and cried. For nearly fifteen minutes, he bawled like a madman. Finally, he climbed to his feet and put his gas mask back on. Then he picked up Laura's naked body and carried her back down into the storm cellar, where he placed her on the folding bed, which Ed brought down here from Jack's cabin, and he tied her to the wall. Five minutes later, peering out across the lake, Jack began making phone calls. Americans awakened the next day to the news that the notorious Cornfield killer was dead. Sheriff Jack Carver was giving the credit for finding the murderer and bringing him to justice. Unfortunately, the good sheriff wasn't in time to save Laura Eaton, the killer's final victim, who was strangled to death by her own father. Jack received phone calls from all the major networks asking him for interviews. He refused them all. Among the evidence discovered at Jack's lakeside cabin was a videotape made by Ed less than 24 hours before he was killed. It offered the only meager insight about his twisted motivations. On the tape, the dentist revealed, I never used to be like this. Something happened recently. Something changed. Suddenly, I couldn't even look at Laura anymore without experiencing these terrible cravings. And then, I don't know, I just snapped. Of his other young victims, all he had to say was, I had to practice first. I had to get it right before I did Laura. For the sheriff of Trinity County, the most horrifying part of the video was when Ed addressed him directly. I know how this ends, Jack. I didn't know when I started, but I know now. It ends with you killing me. And you know what? A man Jack didn't recognize laughed aloud. I'm okay with that. Knowing I'm going to die frees me up. It takes away all the stress. Jack's best friend laughed again and looked truly relieved. Ed ended the tape saying, I know what to do about Laura now. He smiled warmly, proclaiming, I'll send her on ahead, and then I'll follow, I'm certain. His eyes appeared to be dead already as he looked directly at the camera, finishing, With your help, Jack. His final chilling summation was, Haughty girls shouldn't tease their fathers. He didn't even mention Joni, even though the recording was presumably made just after he hanged her. Jack's shame and guilt were soul-crippling. He was furious about the Sensora sisters. He tried to find them to no avail. Ultimately, however, he knew who was to blame for all these tragedies. A man who failed to serve and protect. The Eaton house was inherited by Ed's brother, who lived in Florida. He listed the property with a realtor, and it promptly sold. One night, three months after the three funerals, Jack came home from work to discover he had new neighbors. The house next door was lit up, drapes hung in the windows, and two black Corvettes were parked in the driveway. Jack barely noticed. He had a date with a brand new bottle of bourbon. As he ate his microwaved supper, Jack Carver's sense of personal identity had never been so unclear. Wasn't he the lawman credited with bringing in the notorious cornfield killer? Or was he the man whose lies got Joni Eaton hanged? Certainly he was the man who shot his best friend. And wasn't he the guy who strangled the helpless young woman he was supposed to rescue? 
Or was he the woman herself? If he wasn't Laura Eaton, he should be. Was he the killer or the killer's killer? He didn't know who he was anymore. As the man in the sheriff's uniform struggled to remember his own name, there came a rapping at his front door. He knew immediately it was them, and he was instantly angry. He didn't know why they'd come back to him, and he didn't care. They had tricked him into stealing Laura's senses, and now they were going to pay. He knew it was the Sensora sisters. Grabbing his gun, flipping off the safety, Jack stalked to his front door and opened it. Seeing them again made him crazy. Enraged, he pointed his pistol at Clara, only to lose all sensation of touch. Simultaneously, he went blind, and he was fairly certain his sense of taste and smell were also obliterated. He couldn't tell if he was still holding a gun or not. He couldn't feel anything. Clara's voice. You can't harm us, Sheriff. Ivada's voice. Don't even try it. Flora's voice. You've lost, Jack. Lucia's voice. Why can't he accept it like a man? Ivona answered her sister, saying sarcastically, Yeah, right. His senses were returned to him with a bang. He found himself on the floor, his knees aching. His gun was gone. They had disarmed him while he was senseless. Shall we go inside, Jack? asked Flora, batting her eyes at him. The five sisters strolled into his house. Jack scrambled to his feet and followed them. The front door slammed shut behind him. Clara said, We did as promised, Sheriff. Lucia asked her sisters, He found her alive, right? Yes, answered Ivata. Ivona remarked, For all the good it did her. His rage rose again, fogging his mind, propelling him forward, fists raged, intent on beating Ivana's face in. Again he was stripped of four of his five senses. He was void. He had no clue if he was still swinging his arms or if he'd fallen flat on his face. You asked us if we were witches, remember, Sheriff? We aren't, not exactly. We're more like vampires. We are a breed of night creatures that have existed for centuries. We feed on people's perceptions, Jack. We eat human senses. Jack's fury had withered. He believed them. They weren't human. After each clairvoyant vision they gave him, Jack had thought the sisters looked like they were in some kind of drugged-out stupor. Now he realized they were just overly full, having gorged themselves into a state of satiated lethargy, understanding that these five sisters slowly devoured Laura's five connections to the world, terrified Jack. The women returned his senses to him. Once again, Jack found himself prostrate at the feet of the immortal Sensora sisters. What do you want from me? Tears streaming down his face, he begged to know. Why are you doing this to me? I told you, said Clara, on the night we first met. My sisters and I have been wandering. We've decided to put down roots here, said Ivara. You'll make a wonderful neighbor, Jack, said Flora. Ivona grinned devilishly. You won't even know we're around. What do you think, sisters? asked Lucia. With that wonderful feast he and Laura helped to provide us, it will be at least five years before any of us will need to feed again, right? Right, sister. Oh, most definitely. Flora clarified, Now that we have secured entry into this community, we will be able to eat without your aid, of course. But our first meal... 
That wouldn't have been possible without you, Jack. He was more overwhelmed than confused, but he found himself muttering, I, I don't understand. Her stoic features clouding over with a frown, Clara further explained, We have certain restrictions on our existence, Sheriff. Before we could take up residency here, we needed to introduce ourselves to the people's protector. That's you, Mr. Carver, said Ivada. But there is something you get in return, added Flora. What? Ivona frowned and Flora smiled. Lucia gave the answer. A glamour. What? he asked, more confused than ever. Ivada told him, You will continue to serve as sheriff for a very long time, Mr. Carver. People outside this county may criticize your actions, but around here you'll always be a hero. You will be re-elected every time you run for office. Clara insisted, and you will continue to run for office until your dying day. You will never retire. And while you are sheriff, you will never disturb my sisters and I. Ominously, Lucia declared, You're our protector now, human. Otherwise, warned Ivana, the entire world will learn the truth about how Laura Eaton died. He was shocked to the core of his being, and yet not at all surprised by the threat. Of course these fiends knew what he did. Meekly he said, You set me up. No, Jack, said Flora. We did exactly as we promised, insisted Ivada. Ivona reminded him, We didn't murder the girl. Five pairs of eyes said in stares, You did that. Jack decided, I'll just kill myself. Clara seemed to read his mind, or his defeatist body language. Coldly, she informed him, You'll find it impossible to do yourself harm, Sheriff. If you try, you'll again lose all your senses. And when you do eventually die, well, Lucia shrugged, do you honestly think that means it's over? With acidic disdain, Flora said, you'll just be handing off your problems to the next sheriff. Ivana called him a coward. Who knows, Clara stated evenly. In that case, another serial killer might even crop up. Immediately, Jack recalled Ed's final words. She made me do it, Jack. She made me. He went absolutely berserk when Ed said it because he thought Ed was talking about Laura. Now Jack wondered if Ed was referring to a different she. Don't worry, Sheriff, reassured Clara. It won't be so bad. We don't eat often. Once a year or so, some young maiden somewhere in the county will suddenly go blind or inexplicably lose one of her other senses, and the world will continue to turn. We'll try to select women who are unknown to you, Jack, so we don't exacerbate your guilt. Rest assured, you won't even hear about most of our exploits. Do you understand, Sheriff? asked Clara. He understood all too well. I'm your slave. Don't look at it that way. Think of all the good you can do for the people of this community. Think of the lives you can save. Think of duty and honor and all that happy horse shit. Think whatever you want, mortal. Just leave us alone. As one, all five asked him, Do you understand us, Sheriff? Yes, he said. Lucia, smiling brightly, We should be going now, don't you think, sisters? Yes, absolutely. 
We've still got a lot of unpacking to do before dawn. Clara said, Good night, Sheriff. Ivara said politely with no hint of sarcasm or irony, Thank you for a lovely evening, Mr. Carver. Ivana opened the front door, saying gruffly, Later, neighbor. Flora blew him a kiss, and Lucia gave him a quick, cold peck on the cheek before leaving. Alone again in his house, Jack headed into his kitchen and retrieved his bottle of Jack Daniels. He sat at his kitchen table, poured himself a glass, picked it up, then hesitated. Five years. They said they wouldn't need to feed again for at least five years. That gave him five years to figure out a way to defeat them. Jack had seen a lot of monster movies. Even the worst villains had their vulnerabilities. The Censura sisters must have a weakness. They compared themselves to vampires, and vampires had many weaknesses. Jack knew his own lack of self-confidence led him to disaster. He was determined to do better. He took the bottle of Jack Daniels to the kitchen sink and poured it down the drain. I know who I am, he muttered aloud. Jack Curtis Carver was the sheriff of Trinity County. Pulling back the shade on the window that looked out on the house next door, he vowed aloud, And I will find a way to protect the people. Let's see. More about Bill O'Neill. Mr. O'Neill had a one-minute YouTube video that was produced through Weird Tales entitled, I Was a Teenage Beehive. You could look at that. Mr. O'Neill had a dark poem, Delusions on the Rocks, and a short horror story, The Black and Blue Wasteland, published in 2012 in the January and December issues of Cover of Darkness from Sam's Dot Publishing. A collection of 13 tales of terror written by Mr. O'Neill are currently available on Amazon, Amazon.com. Sensory Desolation is part of that collection. The collection is entitled Fishing in Brains for an Eye with Teeth. And by the way, Sensory Desolation was originally published by Sam's Dot Publishing in the May 2011 issue of Cover of Darkness. William Markley O'Neill says he is a proud member of the Horror Writers Association. He lives in Anderson, Indiana, and has several cats. The senior alpha black cat is named Bats. Uh, Bill recently acquired a black-and-white kitten, he said, and Bats is still undecided whether or not the wee one may stay, and I know exactly how that kitten feels. Mahler, the ink-black cat of the Nook's companion and supervisor, the fair Miss Tabitha, has been with us for mm, three years now, and I believe she has not yet decided about me. I suppose so long as I feed, water, and treat her, the book will remain open on me. Well, this evening's tale was read for us by an old pal whom I have never met Mr. Mike Boris, who, with his son Jacob, uh, they're becoming mainstays of our little world here in the District of Wonders. From the safety and seclusion of his basement recording booth, he's narrated numerous tales for the Starship Sofa, Drabblecast, Escape Pod, The Way of the Buffalo, 
us and, well, one or two others. Mike is a professional narrator of e-learning and has been in radio, voiceover, and narration for more than ten years, and says he still enjoys bringing short stories to life. Based in the heartland of America, Mike provides an I'm-not-sure-where-he's-from-but-I-like-his-voice kind of performance. Check him out online at MikeBorisAudio.com. That's MikeBorisAudio, all one word, and the usual, dot com. Drop him a note and say, hey, or whatever it is you say, wherever you are. By the way, he says he was delighted when he learned today's story was written by a fellow that lives just a couple of miles from him. 20 miles, I believe, which in the heartland is just a spit and a throw. Well, we planned it that way, Mike. And thanks again. And there we have it. I would have you be up and doing, bright and chipper. Redon, rewrap, prepare yourselves for the walk home. And if you begin to feel your senses failing along the way, well, lone digit temperatures and dire wind chill can do that. Numb the skin, freeze your nose, your eyes water, your ears. Well, they're muffled, muffed, or hooded. And your tongue, well, there's nothing to taste out there but fire smoke in the air and nothing, nothing at all before you get home. Hmm? Now, don't worry about the loss of senses. Once in bed and warm, living in your memories of the evening, the senses will once again be revived by your doubtless pleasant dreams. Hmm? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.